The pandemic has opened nurses' eyes to seek out new careers in nursing. We always get more questions about what other opportunities there are in nursing other than working at the bedside. Both of us have our master's degrees and it has afforded us career advancement, flexibility of schedules, and work-life balance. Going back to school is always an option. And Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. They're consistently ranked top in the U.S. for diversity and highest paid graduates. In order to help nurses advance their education during these crazy times, they are offering over a dozen different types of easily obtainable scholarships, starting at $10,000 for any nurse who enrolls in the spring 2022 semester in either their online MSN FMP or DNP FMP programs. So visit them at smumsn.com. Again, that is smumsn.com. Hello, is this thing on? Do you think they can hear us? Nah, let's say it again. Hi, and welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. My name is Amy. And my name is Sarah. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or any other podcast listening platform, don't forget to subscribe so you can get updates to when we have our latest episodes. Also, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you like what you're hearing and you love our advocacy work, don't forget to go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the donate button. As little as $1 or $2 a month for a total of $12 a year, will help us with our monthly podcast costs such as website hosting, our hosting platform, audio equipment, and the time and energy it takes us to put out good quality episodes. We thank you and we appreciate you. Hi and welcome everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again today. We're going to keep it spooky because, you know, it's still the Halloween season when you'll be listening to this. And we thought that we would take a little bit of a different turn. Instead of talking about um, horror stories, we're going to talk a little bit about death and dying and um, some of the, the ideas and tropes around like nurses and horror films and whatnot. So, yeah, that's what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, I think this is a very timely topic because, of course, being in nursing, we deal with death and dying all the time, uh, depending on where you work, of course. I think that it just shows the diversity of nursing where you could potentially be working in an area where you deal with death and dying daily, like if you work in palliative care, or uh, maybe if you work in another area like maternal child, it might be something you see very rarely. And when you do see it, it's unexpected and it can be very emotional. And we just wanted to talk about, you know, how nurses are portrayed in the media, on TV shows and movies, and how they do get it wrong a lot of times. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just talking about that in the spirit of Halloween and that kind of thing. So Amy, why don't you start with our first topic? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing that we should hit off is, you know, why do people find death so scary? And just like if I think about my own, like my own feelings surrounding death, I think it's because it's so final, right? And if I can recall my first um, time where I actually saw a patient die, it was, it was quite traumatic for me, to be honest. Like, I, I, I don't know how well they prepare you again in nursing school. I know that sounds really bad. But like, 
I don't think that I fully was equipped to understand, you know, being that person in the moment while this patient was dying. So for example, this was actually when I was doing a long-term care rotation and the, it was an elderly gentleman. And I remember what made this situation so sad and so difficult was the fact that, um, he had no family. So I was actually taking care of him for a long period of time. And because he was palliative, he, he didn't really talk very much. And I remember kind of going through the charts, like um, no contact with his, his, his children. Like I don't, I didn't know what the reason was. I wasn't trying to find out because at the end of the day, I just wanted to, you know, do my job and make sure I was looking after this patient. And I remember um, when I walked into the room, he was having agonal breathing and I was kind of like oh my god we need to call a code and then this was like okay it's dawning on me the fact that you know um this gentleman's dying and he doesn't have any loved ones to call there there is no one and and that role was was going to be me so I remember actually talking to my preceptor and she's like yeah just you know go in there be with him and I was scared like I was terrified And I remember just sitting in the room while he's having these agonal breaths and I kind of walked over towards the bed and he kind of like gasped and like looked at me and was like super terrified. And then I think he kind of took his last breaths and I was just like, if that's the way dying is, like that is horrifying. And I just Mm -hmm. felt, one, I felt horrible for the patient because he he didn't have anybody, at least I was there. But in his last few moments, he was he looked very scared and it was, it was scary from his end, I'm sure. And definitely scary for my end because after that, they're just like, all right, that's it. And they like threw a white sheet over him and, and whisked him off to the morgue. And I was just like, oh my God, like two seconds ago he was there and now he's gone. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, for me, it was terrifying. I mean, since then, um, I actually haven't really seen very many people die, um, particularly older people, because, and I think that's just the nature of our job or maternal child nurses. So typically mm-hmm. if we do see a patient dying, um, it's typically, and this really sucks. It typically is an infant that might need resuscitation. And then there are the, the really, really horrible cases where, you know, um, there is, um, a fetal demise where, you know, um, there's a stillborn and that again is a really, really, really difficult situation. And I guess we, we haven't talked about it this month, but we are aware that um, the month of October is a perinatal awareness loss month. And, you know, um, again, just a really difficult time for anybody, but death is scary. And I think death is scary because people don't know what, what's beyond, if there is anything beyond that when you close your eyes and you take your last breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amy, you said so many things that resonate with me. And just thinking back to what I recall from nursing school, um, we had to watch a really emotional video about a terminal cancer patient who was dying of breast cancer, I believe, and went into a lot of emotional interviews where she's crying really hard on the camera. And I'm looking around to my classmates. They're crying just as hard. So I think that it was probably not the best video for us to be watching as student nurses who hadn't dealt with death and dying and really didn't know what we were getting into. I appreciate that they wanted to at least bring some of that element into our teaching. But just thinking back to 
death that I've dealt with has all been infants, unfortunately. So when I worked in NICU, we had to, when there was a neonatal death, we had to do a lot of things to prepare the body. So we had to take these molds of the baby's hands and feet. We had to, you know, bathe the baby, dress the baby. Um, Sometimes we would take pictures, work with the family, which is obviously really hard because it's so unexpected. And I think the part, right. Yeah. The part about death that I feel like needs to be addressed is just managing expectations on um, not just for the family, but for the nurse involved, right? Like, was this death expected or was it unexpected? How old was the patient? Because I think that really affects how you feel as well about the situation, whether it's a three-year-old, you know, a 30-year-old, a 90-year-old, it changes how you feel about it altogether. And I think it's just about what you do to deal with it. Like, how do you prepare yourself Um, What are your personal beliefs around death and dying? And what have you experienced in your personal life? I think that all plays into how you feel and how you react to situations. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think just kind of going back to what you said, like for the, for the most part, we have, our experiences have really been um, infants and, and um, neonates, but um, I kind of want to bring in a little bit about my mom's stories and just with, you know, I don't know, like it's kind of a weird thing that my mom has where she is, I don't want to say she is like the angel of that. That sounds really effed up, but just, she's had some really, really tough experiences with death with both of my grandparents. So I don't know how it ended up happening, but she ended up really literally being the person with um, both my grandfather and my grandmother at their most, you know, difficult time. So I, um, again, when my grandfather was dying at, in Brampton at the Peel Hospital, Peel Memorial, so not the current hospital now, she was the one that was holding his hand while he took his last breath. We were all around, but he specifically requested my mom. Oh, wow. And then again, with my grandmother, which was even which was even more messed up. Actually, I just had my twins and my grandmother had actually asked my mom to come out to Florida because she, she just said she wasn't feeling well. So my mom had flown out to Florida to be with her and she had asked me, she's like, are you sure you want me to go? And I'm like, you know what, if grandma's calling you to go, like, just go. Like, I'm here, Jordan's here. I'll have whatever support I have to have. And I remember kind of contemplating even, I think my twins were around three or four months at the time. I was contemplating even leaving them to go out to to see her. My grandma, I think the day she was going to be discharged, they they checked her out. They said she had a clean bill of health. There was nothing else they could do with her for her. They had noticed that she had some clots in her legs, but they said that they had put a stent in and everything should be fine. And as my mom was walking her down the hallway of the hospital for discharge, my grandma had a massive PE. No way. Yeah. The way my mom described it, like, I mean, uh, my mom said essentially she, my grandma grabbed onto her and and she said that the, I guess the pain or the force of what uh, whatever happened to her ended up knocking her dentures out. And my mom said she looked absolutely terrified. And she said she could literally feel my grandma's body and her um, her life being whisked away at that moment. Oh my god! My mom, that was that was traumatic and terrifying and a really horrible experience. But again, like I was saying at the beginning with this other gentleman, just that these these last moments for some individuals, and even just the way my mom and her, like had to deal with that, what are was really really terrifying. And I think, I mean. I know my mom's a strong person. She'd identify herself as a strong person. But whenever I hear her talk about my grandmother's death or my grandpa's death, particularly my grandmother's death, she talks about it in a way that 
it's fearful because, you know, she was the one there with those last moments. And again, I just think that it's so final. We don't know. We don't know if they're in pain. I think we make these assumptions and for the most part, you know, Mm -hmm. we have medications Mm -hmm. that we say that were, that makes them feel comfortable at that time. But I think for my grandma, in terms of my mom's experience, she said it didn't look like it was painless, even though I think it happened rather quickly. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. the shock of it was really scary for her. And I mean, I think that like, for example, I do have an aunt that's um, considered palliative as well. And my mom's there always taking care of her, always looking out for her. And I I get scared for my mom because I'm just like, I don't, how much more of this can you take? But again, like think about nurses who work in palliative care, nurses that work in, in these areas or COVID units that see death and dying all the time. I mean, how do they Mm -hmm. manage it? Maybe that's, maybe, what do you, what do you think? How, how do, how do nurses tend to deal with death and dying? I think that's a really good question. And just to to start off with your mom, like that must have been so traumatic for her and, you know, for your grandma to be so close to leaving the hospital and then have this incident happen. I hope your mom doesn't blame herself because she just happened to be there, but I could see how someone might feel that way. Right. But just about how nurses deal with death and dying. One thing I forgot to mention is that I used to work in an early pregnancy clinic. So we basically dealt with first trimester losses like Monday to Friday every day. And I think that there's different ways that nurses deal with death and dying when it's always there. I think number one is you become desensitized to the situation, which isn't great, but I think it's more right. of a protective mechanism because if you really, you know, were really emotional about every single patient, you might just, it might be too much for you. Right. And then the second thing is I think that people, nurses will kind of reach out to each other. So if if there's a colleague that you work with and you deal with death and dying often, maybe you just kind of debrief with each other and talk about how you're feeling. Or maybe you have some close family or friends that kind of get where you're coming from and you can talk to them. I think that as nurses, though, we generally feel like people outside of the profession don't really understand what we're going through. So that can be a little bit more challenging. I also think that debriefing is important if it's if it's something that doesn't occur regularly. I think debriefing, whether it's that same shift or whether you let some time pass and you do a formal debrief is really important. And last but not least, what we always talk about is take advantage of the supports available to you. If you yeah. have mental health benefits, if you have an employee assistance program at your work, make sure you know what's available and it's there for a reason and make sure that you use it when you feel like you're getting overwhelmed or even even before that point if you just want to prevent yourself from feeling that way it's always a really good option yeah absolutely and I think you know I think the 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 whole the whole discussion on the desensitization I think there's one point that you did miss too and and nurses can have really dark humor like I mean sometimes that's the other the other maladaptive but nonetheless coping mechanism that you know um sometimes it becomes dinner talk and you're you know something a nurse might find funny is is not funny to other people sitting around the dinner table eating you know their meal when a nurse might be you know making a joke or saying something it's like okay it might be inappropriate but maybe we should ask more questions in terms of like how that person's actually dealing with that and I remember, and and also just talking about the other angle of, you know, that, that desensitization 
is I think it's actually okay to show compassion. It's okay to show that you're hurting too. And that, you know, um, you're there for the family and the patients. I mean, I'm not, I don't think you should, uh, let out a river of tears in front of them, but you know, like I've had my moments where, you know, uh, I can remember, I guess it would, I would say it was a very impactful time for, in terms of my nursing experience where I did have, there was a patient and I don't know why it impacted me this way. It was a fetal demise. And I think maybe it was because I was that triage nurse and I was the one doing the assessments, knowing that, you know, the bad news was coming. And I think I've said this before, like I've never heard um, a patient let out a scream like that. And I think I just had to be a human being like, Mm -hmm. you know, shut off the being a nurse, being a healthcare professional, just be there in the moment. And when the patient left and was wheeled down to uh, postpartum, which is a whole other situation to put a pregnant uh, patient who just had a loss on a postpartum unit where you hear babies crying. I remember when she got wheeled down there, um, there was a little bit of a transfer of care. I bawled. I walked into that medicine cabinet. I opened that door and I let it rip because it was, it was awful. It was a horrible, horrible thing to see. And it was just, Again, it wasn't my experience. I didn't want to be that person that was bawling there in front of her face. But, you know, I think Mm -hmm. that just being in the moment with the patient, like I did have tears running down my face. I wasn't like wet like a river, but Mm -hmm. I had like I took the time to, you know, go and go and let off some steam because it's it's terrible, scary. And I think that, again, I think talking about death and dying is a really important thing. We don't do it very often. I I recently had a very... um, difficult conversation with a fan with a family member recently and being in a situation where I might be you know um a, a power of attorney or someone's you know medical di- oh my gosh I'm drawing a blank you know what I'm talking about substitute um, decision maker substitute decision maker or even you know executor of um oh, so finances at the end of the day mm-hmm. and I think that I don't like we don't think about it you know I think we we reserve the thought of death for people who are elderly Right. But we shouldn't, right? Like, I mean, I'll ask you and you you don't have the answer, but do you have a will? I do have a will actually. And do you- (laughs) Better than me. (laughs) You don't have a will? Yeah, I don't. And and it's it's funny. It's not that I don't have the opportunity to, because obviously when we purchased our home, they, uh, the lawyer's like, Hey, you should do this. And I'm like, yeah, I should. And every time I've started filling it out, I'm like, I can't do this right now. And I don't, and I know it's the right thing to do. And it's just like, for example, when I I told you we had some family members over and we were talking about, you know, advanced directives and and we'll maybe talk a little bit about that. So um, if you're not a healthcare provider, you can have a better understanding what that might be. But I kind of was just like, yeah, like I need to get on the ball with this. But I also expressed what my wishes were to my family members at that time, if, you know, something was to happen to me. But I don't have a will. Isn't that messed okay. up? <laughs> you know, you know why I do have a will. I had an aha moment. So a friend of a friend, when I was, when I had just given birth to my son, she posted on Facebook that her friend passed away from the flu. She was perfectly healthy. She was like in her thirties. And I was like, I'm like, oh my God. So literally the next day I made appointments for us to get our wills done. I had it done in Walmart. So super classy. I was like, whatever. It's a, it's a good price. Like, let's just get yeah. this done. So we got our wills done and we didn't prepare anything. So like, who do you want to take care of your son if something happens to both of you? So we had to think about that in the moment, but I'm glad we did it and got it over with because if we didn't have a will and something 
God forbid, happen to both of us? Like, what's going to happen, right? And I haven't updated it since I've had my second child, which I keep saying I need to do. But at least I have this first will. (laughs) You're you're light years ahead of me already. Like, I mean, I think I've expressed things to Jordan. Um, He's expressed things to me, but we don't have anything concretely written. And I think that is that is for us the next step. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I hate sitting and thinking about like, okay, um, if I wasn't here, Jordan wasn't here, who who would look after our kids? And I think it's just, it's, again, it's just that whole thought of th- everything being so final, not knowing what, what really happens. Is there life after death? Is there not? And I think that obviously believe, um, mm-hmm. depending on your, your beliefs, but it's just, I feel it's so final. And I know I need to like whip my ass into shape and get it done and get it over. Now that I know this about you, Amy, I'm not going to let this oh, go. No. So <laughs> I, I, I do have some work to do on my end, but maybe I'll just circle back to, you know, um, what an advanced directive is. And I think that this is actually an important conversation for everyone who's listening to let people let people know what your wishes are especially when it comes to death and dying because I think at the end of the day you should be the one who makes those decisions you should be the one who has say in terms of you know what types of supports do you want do you want life-altering supports do you want to be on a ventilator do you, like you can make it as specific as you want like I think you know people tend to have these blanket DNRs you know let's say you got into a car accident and you're like in your 30s maybe you don't want a DNR right right you right. would say hey wh- what would my quality of life be and and actually really explicitly lay out you know whether it's speaking with your family doctor or whomever like what your wishes are because I think those are hugely important and I think it'd be so hard to be you know that family member, if you haven't expressed that to be like, okay, now this patient or this, my loved one is, is critically ill. And I have no idea what they would have want, wanted. Right, I'm right. I'm, ass- I'm assuming, right? So I think you do it mainly. So it's for yourself, but it's for everyone around you too, right? So I always think of the situation, let's say I got into a car accident and I'm now a quadriplegic and I can't do anything. What would I want for myself and for the people around me? And the reason you have advanced medical directives and a will for that matter is that you're going to make everything easier for your family. Because I've seen really ugly situations where someone's passed away without a will, Amy, and you know, the people that are left behind, they're fighting over the pettiest little things. Even when you do have a will, I've heard from a good friend of mine, it's still a lot of work. So even if you have everything lined up, it's a lot of work for the executor. So really, you just want to make things as easy as possible for the people that you're leaving behind. And so I think that's hugely important. And it's hard to think about death and dying. But When I went to this lawyer, there was like a template. So it's not like I had to write anything out. You just had to like check a few boxes, you know, tell them what name to fill in and and then it was done. So it's pretty painless. (laughs) I know you're you're right. And the other piece that you're you're like 100% right. Like when it comes to like leaving nothing behind, (laughs) I, I don't want to be the one that tells the story, but like maybe I'll have my mom on the podcast at some point. But my parents were, actually, I should say it was my mom who was telling me a story just like two weeks ago about a, a death that happened a while back in our family. Probably I was maybe 10 to 13 years old. And she was telling me about this crazy fight, like fist fight that broke out at a funeral. No. That my mom, yes. This Your mom was gonna, at this? Your mom? Yes. I, and I have, you know, this is why I think I should have her on. And she, ta- she told me, literally, she had hit people after her. I'm like... I could have been orphaned and you would have never told me. And she's like, oh, she had a bodyguard with her in Jamaica who was like 
a paid bodyguard to protect her because she she and my dad had people leveling death threats at her and I was just like oh my god like over what you know and I think it was like over um, a piece of land or something like that in Jamaica but like I've been at funerals where people started arguing and it's just, or, you know, I've heard of stories where people are saying like the will is being read and people are like freaking out. Don't make it so complicated. <laughs> just And you're right. I have work to do too. But, you know, for our listeners, do you guys have a will? Do you have advanced directives? And again, I think the person who is your power of attorney or your, your executor, they don't actually have to be the same person. Like you could have one person who deals with just your finances and someone else who deals with um, your medical care, or they could be the same person. I think it just depends on who you might be most comfortable with at the time. Right. And it sounds kind of morbid too, but when you think about who is going to be the executor of your will, ideally it shouldn't be a parent because- Let's right. face it. Like, are they going to be here in 30 or 40 years? So you need to think about someone that's your age or younger. And these are these are hard conversations to have. But again, just getting something out there is better than having nothing at all. I would hate to see anybody, you know, pass away and then whatever little is left has been fought over. And then all that money goes to lawyers because they can't figure out who it goes to. Yeah, that's that's super messed up. I think from our medical standpoint, because I think when it comes to us, we're kind of more looking towards who who's the substitution decision maker, who's the person making the decision, who's who is the power of attorney. And again, I think as healthcare providers, our job is to make sure that one, we are fulfilling what we believe would be this person's wishes if there if there are no wishes expressed. And then two, to bring people together to have a collaborative discussion. I think those situations where, you know, you have a palliative patient, um, we know that the trajectory is going to be death. You need to sit people in a room and be like, hey, we need to do this. I think at least you can mitigate some of the fallout if you sit down and have a conversation with people knowing that what's going to happen. That's kind of like my thoughts in terms of, you know, some of the work that needs to be done in terms of understanding death and dying and, and just how nurses overall um, cope with death. And I think, you know, I'd say that overall nurses do a pretty good job. I think it's it's stressful. I, I don't think that, you know, there's any person that would sit there and be like, yeah, this is easy. This is great. Definitely not the case. And, you know, it's just not an easy situation and we just have to do our best. Absolutely. And I think there's some strategies that we can use to deal with death and dying when you are feeling like this is not going well, or let's say this is the first death you've had. I think the first thing is to recognize that death is inevitable. So whether or not you expected it, whether or not it was expected in general, it's just a part of life. And I think the other thing is, even though it's not your family member, it's your patient, just give yourself that time to grieve because you're human after all. And depending on how the patient passed away, it might touch a nerve with you. So if this was a patient that had um, a miscarriage and you've had one as well, that might really trigger something in you and that's okay. Communicate with your family members about how you're feeling, even if they may not really get it. At least they understand that you had a hard day, you know, your patient passed away and you just need that time to yourself or whatever. Like I said before, talk with your colleagues. It's it's always helpful if there's someone more experienced that has gone through this before or someone that you really look up to. Just, you know, say, hey, how are you doing? How have you dealt with this in the past? Because I'm really feeling um, overwhelmed about, you know, this patient that passed away. If you can even just take some time to yourself, you know, get outdoors, go for a walk, take a bath, just something to just get your mind off it. And you don't have to always look for a reason. So I know as nurses, as 
mothers, as women, we tend to look at ourselves and think, if I'd just done this or I'd done that, maybe things would be different. So I think it's important to know that you probably did your best and you just happened to be there because of the nature of our job. So somebody was going to be that patient's nurse and that somebody happened to be you. And also try not to dwell in grief because I think that if you let it eat away at you, it's really just going to make things worse. So do some of the things we talked about in terms of um, finding someone supportive to reach out to. I think that's really important. And the last thing that I just wanted to mention is just your comfort level about death and dying. I did find um, a study that said younger nurses under the age of 30 consistently reported stronger fear of death and more negative attitudes towards end-of-life patient care. And that just might be where you are in terms of life experience. You just haven't had a lot of that exposure yet. And right. it's it's okay. Like, I think we all kind of grow and learn as we, as we uh, get more experience in nursing. Yeah. And the one last piece that I want to add specifically to uh, for healthcare providers, so nurses, physicians, allied health, whoever might be encountering a patient and family, take that time to be compassionate. Okay. I was actually at just recently at a McMaster retreat where they were talking about compassion and they were talking about how healthcare providers are really sucking (laughs) at compassion right now. And they were saying it takes 40 seconds or less to be compassionate to just say, you know, um, and to show empathy to just, you know, I think there was like an illustration where, you know, the person was down in the pit feeling really low and you could have been that person shouting down, like looking down, like, Hey, that sucks. No, that's, that's sympathy. (laughs) They, They know that their situation sucks, but it might be just, you know, coming down, being on the same level with them and be like, Hey, I'm here with you. I know this is hard. Right. And I think that there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of compassion fatigue with COVID-19 and various different things that have been happening over the last 18 months. But please, please, please take that 40 seconds or less to put yourself in that other person's shoes and to know that they're going through something that's very, very difficult. Just mm-hmm. like, just please don't be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> be show some compassion. I mean, I think I think at the end of the day we all got into this profession for a reason and I think that reason is to one yes, we want to see better health care outcomes, but it's because we genuinely care. We want to see that, you know, we're 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 providing the best care and the best resources we can to patients and families and showing compassion and empathy is hugely, hugely important. And I think some way along the way in our journeys, we've lost the ability to be more compassionate. And and I think it's it's time to turn that back around and make sure that we're showing that compassion to, to our, mm-hmm. our, 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 our patients and families. Yeah. And if you don't know what to say, just keep it really simple. Just say, you know, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Sometimes I think nurses or not just nurses, but people in healthcare, they try to smooth things over, you know, at least, (laughs) at least they weren't in pain, at least they were only X number of years old. And the worst thing that you can say to a mother who's just lost a baby is at least you can try to have another one. Yeah, at least statements are the worst. Don't never. (laughs) And you can literally say, I'm sorry, like, I don't know what to say. That is okay, too. Be in the moment with your patient and try not to judge them or trivialize what's happened to them. Even saying that you don't know what to say is better than absolutely saying some of those other things. Yeah. Even yeah. just a, even just a, is there something I could do for you in this moment? 
It could be just, you know, like, hey, I just need five minutes. I need, I need a glass of water. Like, just asking that it, they're they're not going to ask you for money out of your wallet. Like, <laughs> like, I I think at that moment that even just hearing that they'll know that you actually care about them and that you cared about their family member and their loved one. So let's try to pepper some compassion and empathy back into our care. So and I think it I think also the what they said was um they, there was a study that was done. They were saying that the more compassionate the care providers are, there's actually like a feedback loop or like not a, not a loop, but a feedback uh, of, I guess, dopamine that happens within the care provider that reduces their burnout, reduces, you know, compassion fatigue, because showing compassion also, you know, gives you something back as a healthcare provider. So other things to think about as opposed to, you know, just walking out of the room and not being compassionate and being awful. Don't do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Wise words, Amy. So before we hand off on to, uh, we've talked more about the more serious aspects. Let's talk a little bit about the like, ooh, scary parts in terms of, you know, nurses roles in when it comes to death and dying in media. Oh my God. We are always the bad guys. <laughs> we are always the deadites. You know it's true, right? Like, oh, it- it's so true. Like, honestly, I watched um, Nurse Ratched on Netflix recently, and I was traumatized by it. Like, I, it was bad. Did you watch it? I watched bits and parts, and it fell off for me because I was just kind of like, you know what? I think this is kind of giving nurses a bad rap. Like, kinda, I think- it's so messed up. <laughs> it's so messed up. I watched the whole thing, and I had nightmares about some of the episodes. I'm not going to get into the gory <laughs> details, but I had nightmares because it's so messed up. <laughs> but yeah, like. Like, honestly, when, when I was Googling today, I was like, okay, let me just see, you know, um, nurses in horror movies, phys- physicians in horror movies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, my physician colleagues, you're going to get it today. No, you're not. But essentially, like, physicians tend to be, you know, they might be the one, like, um, a part of the role where, you know, an evil spirit or something has been conjured up. But they're, they never really themselves turn into this evil entity, they're never the ones that are, you know, walking around wielding a knife and being like this evil doctor, demon doctor type thing. Nurses, there are tons and tons of movies where we are like the number one bad guy. So I could just start naming them off. So I think the one that comes to my mind when I think about nursing and like scary nurses, well, one, yes, it's um, one flew of the cuckoo's nest. So that nurse, I think everyone talks about Nurse Ratchet, like the OG Nurse Ratchet, where she's mm-hmm. like, yeah. Evil AF. And of course she had to be a psych nurse. So I'm sorry, psych nurses, you guys get a bad rep too. Cause it's either like a crazy evil psych nurse or like it happens in a psych hospital or something. And then the other one that comes to my mind, have you seen the movie misery? No. Oh my gosh. What's wrong with you? Okay. I got to add that to my list. Now you're going to have to watch this with me. So the other nurse that comes to my mind is misery. So I think that movie, so essentially there's like an author, it's a Stephen King movie there's like this great author he goes out to the woods to write a book he gets injured and this nurse decides to she's also like a fan of his work and she decides to take care of him but she's like cray cray Mm. but yeah like just every time nurses are we're like zombies i think if i think about silent hill we were like zombified nurses just always always evil and why why does it have to be us (laughs) this is like this is like going back to what i say about how we need to be more present in the media because when we're not people just write crazy stuff about us we never get to be the hero we're always like the bad guy or the one who turns or the supporting character 
this has to change. Okay, we need a nurse horror movie that portrays us as a hero. Like we're the right. ones why that are can't slaying we be the badasses. Why can't we slay the zombies or the monsters right? or the ghosts? Right? Pick me, pick me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely agree, Sarah. Like we are always literally demonized. Like we're like being exercised. We're we're the ones that are like you know, the evil nurse with the like big needle and we're like, eh, we're going to kill you. Like, why? Why us? And I think I was thinking, I don't know if this is true. It's like, yes, they consider nurses to be the most trusted profession. And then I guess maybe making us the evil ones. It's like even worse because we're like with you 24 hours a day or like, I don't know, but it's just, we need a different narrative. Like, hello, directors, whoever's out there listening to us, let's make a nursing um, horror movie where the nurse is the star and she or he is a badass. They're like taking names, slicing down zombies, killing the bad perps. Mm-hmm. Come on, we got to change this up. Can't be the same thing over and over. I mean, even with the show Nurse Jackie, right? I mean, there was some issues with that image as well. So I don't, mm, I don't think, yeah. I think there's still room for improvement for sure. For too long, th- there's just been this, like, I don't know, man. I remember just watching some of these things and be like, this is not. And can we please have a character that's not white? I think we need some diversity. Have a badass Chinese nurse who has a katana. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but just like, yeah, like spice it up. Like, you know, put some diversity in there. I think I think it's actually about time to see, you know, like, for example, we're, we're, I'm now diverging here. But for example, um, watching, uh, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Watching... Um, Grey's Anatomy. No, I'm trying to blank. I'm such a bad human being. I just okay. Like, just Describe this show. This is going to be like charades. <laughs> no, this is horrible. I can't even go back now. It's it's over. But in in other words, I I think we just need to have more diversity in terms uh, in media in general. And I think that it would be great to see a nursing superhero, a black nursing superhero, a Chinese nursing superhero change it up like we could write something come on ask ask the gritty nurses we've got lots of ideas (laughs) but i mean i think you know we should be the ones writing our narratives we're not we're not these crazy zombie evil demonic people like stop bastardizing our roles and making us you know these horrible people and um we need to change that up i keep thinking of house you know the premise behind house right like there's this weird case and he always suggests something and everyone doesn't believe him and then it ends up being true like i wish there was a show where there's a nurse who kind of dissects these interesting cases and you know provides her expertise and then she solves these like amazing medical mysteries and everyone's in awe like why can't we have something like that because we still don't write our own narrative but we're going to change that we're going to change it we're going to change it sarah but I mean, I think that, again, you know, put nurses in roles where they're actually the ones telling the story. They're the, maybe there should be more nurse directors or nurses in film, in the film industry. Like, who knows? Like, I don't know. I don't really know of any nurses who have really crossed over that, that line. But I think, especially when it comes to horror films, come on. I would love to be consulted for like medical accuracy or even like, hey, how do you think that we, sh- how should we portray this nurse? And then we would throw them a whole bunch of ideas. I I agree. I agree. But I mean, (laughs) I think long story short, what we're trying to say is, hey, horror film industry, nurses are awesome. Try not to kill us off every time you get a chance. And, you know, make us the hero for once. Why not? Instead of making us a deadite. Because, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Kind of awesome. So I think if we are going to wrap up this episode, we just wanted to dedicate this episode to Dr. Nadia Chaudhry. A lot of you may have heard of her. She was a very well-known um, doctor who recently passed away from ovarian cancer. She shared her story on Twitter. I was really moved by it. I'm going to be honest. I was reading her whole story on a Saturday morning and I'm crying and I've never met her. I've never interacted with her. She just was so inspiring because she really advocated for better better awareness of uh, women's cancers, particularly um, ovarian cancer. And she really um, chronicled her history about how long she was experiencing symptoms, was misdiagnosed, and it turned into a months-long ordeal. So by the time she was diagnosed, um, she was basically stage four. And yeah. um, during the time she was in the hospital she was doing a fundraiser where she would walk up and down the hall every day she was able to she called it the Nadia shuffle (laughs) yeah it was it was really inspiring and she shared stories about how she told her son who's my son's age that she was dying and that was really hard for me to read because I feel like that Mm. could have been me so we wanted to dedicate this episode to her in her memory and just make sure that we talk more about these symptoms when we experience them and really advocate for ourselves yeah, and I think she kind of really, for me too, kind of epitomized the that that fear that people have surrounding death. She made death not scary. She really, I, I don't know if it would be saying like died gracefully, died with grit. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the right words would be, but she really took took this path and took us all on this journey with her. And it was it was beautiful. And I think if I could have a measure, a, a, a moniker of that courage and strength that she showed right up until the end, I, I think it, I, it would make me just marginally a better person. Like I think she's, she was very, very, very amazing. She was a, a very amazing woman. And I think that is, that's a, that's a, that was a huge lesson to all of us to show, you know, that even in the face of death, you can show compassion, you can I think she fundraised as well. So she fundraised for neuroscience. Even in death, she was still changing the world. And I think that is that is beyond amazing. And we're I'm thankful for her story and her family. And I I wish them the best. I think they've I think she continued to say that, you know, her children were her her moon and her stars or her her spouse and her, her son, son and her moon, I think. And I think that, you know, I think when she she said that she wanted to just be dining in the in the forest in a with with all of her family and friends amongst her. And I'm sure she's doing that now. So thank you, Nadia, for sharing your story and your beautiful light with us. I have so much respect for her. I think she really took the high road. She could have been really bitter about her misdiagnosis and kind of dwell on that fact. But instead, she decided to use the little time she had left for good. And that's something that we can all learn from.